Hey there, it's Tom Ryan, founder and CEO of ICR. Before we get into the next episode, I wanted to ask that you subscribe to the show. It'll help us get even more unique and interesting guests on the podcast and in turn continue to educate management teams and the growing ecosystem that creates value for fast-growing private and public companies. And while you're at it, head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating. Very much appreciated. Management's everything. And you can have a great company run into the ground by a bad manager. And conversely, you can have a great manager make lemonade out of lemons. When you're a board member that's a professional investor, you see management from a very unique vantage point. I feel that when I went on the board, I let the sunlight in. Right? I opened the windows, opened the shades. It was a breakdown in corporate governance at a huge scale. Being a public company can be hard. Small missteps can have outsized consequences. I'm Tom Ryan, founder and CEO of ICR, and over the last 20 years, we've helped thousands of companies understand and navigate the stock market and the media. We'll demystify these and other increasingly complex stakeholder groups so you can focus on what you do best, building your company, and unlocking your true potential. This is Welcome to the Arena. It's a huge treat to get a behind-the-scenes look of the crucial transitions and incredible growth of some of the most iconic companies in the world. And that's why our guest today needed a two-part episode. Last week, we shared the first part of my conversation with Ed Garden, founder of Tri-End Fund Management and most recently Garden Investments. In part one of our interview, Ed told us how we broke into the investment world and also shared Tri-End's origin story. For part two, we dive into Garden Investments as well as Ed's work on various boards, including how he overcame some major challenges at General Electric. We're picking the interview back up as Ed explains how Tryon has approached building relationships with new companies. Let's enter the arena once again with Ed Garden. Our first investment was Wendy's. Yeah. And... Nelson called the chairman and CEO of Wendy's and said something like, we come in peace. <laughs> yeah. This is our first investment. Yeah. And someone said, isn't that what the Martians say before they blow up Earth? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Not a bad point. <laughs> but, you know, we would typically it would be myself or Nelson would call the CEO and request a meeting. We would typically stop at 4.9%. So the market didn't know we were there. And the reason is we didn't want to surprise the CEO with a 13D filing. Yeah. We wanted to meet them, try to get on the same page with them before it was all public. We initially would just call the CEO and say, you know, we want to come see you with the white paper and, you know, we're 4.9% and we're going to cross five. And we decided there might be a better way, which is let's, Stop at 4.9%, not put out, bring out the white paper, but go spend time with them. Yeah. Go, go break bread, spend time, get to know them. Okay. Ease into this, right? Before we just go in and call them up and say, we own 4.9% of yeah. our board seats. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So at Bank of New York was the first time where we decided to do this. I called Gerald Hassel, who was the chairman and CEO. And I said, Gerald, we, you know, we own a bunch of stock, want to, you know, come see you, talk about the business. 
So we, Gerald and I had a dinner, just, just the two of us and get to know you. How many kids do you have? You know, where'd you grow up? Yeah. Great, great dinner. Then we had a second meeting and it, we broadened it out to our teams. So he had his high command, the Tryon team. We're having a dinner talking about, you know, our respective businesses and, you know, get to know you business. So we had all of this get to know you activity. Yep. And then it was time for me to call Gerald and ask for the board seats. So I did that. And he said no within about a half a second. I could barely even get it out. And he said no. And I was like, so much for that. So much for that strategy. But um, I ultimately went on that board. And Gerald and I, you know, worked great together and all worked out. But I, I think, you know, to answer your question, the CEOs aren't thrilled to hear from an activist. I think it. I think what I'm told is that bankers would tell them if you're going to have an activist in, in the stock, you want Tryon, and you know we would always give them a list of other CEOs to talk to because we were proud of our references from other CEOs. Yeah, like you're actually helping the company. But it is an interesting yeah. point you make. Like when an activist shows up, just by definition it means you haven't done your job properly. So as long as we're talking about some case studies, the one that I think is so interesting is General Electric, where you currently sit on the board, which is just so cool. And there's so many assets in the business that are valuable, but obviously a roller coaster for you. Take us through kind of the lessons learned there and your opinion on that whole phase. First of all, I think it's going to go down as one of the most epic turnarounds of all time because the company now is is performing at a very high level had a lot of problems when when I first joined the board so it's quite a uh, it's quite a story yeah obviously there had to have been inherent problems there that you didn't know about when you first got into it and you got handed a bag of something and had to do the right thing so I won't talk about how we got there, but I'll cut right to now it's, we've been in the stock for a year. They're missing their numbers and they buy the Baker Hughes business. They merge their oil and gas business with Baker Hughes and they spend $7 billion on that um, incremental. They, they combined plus gave them $7 billion and that business almost immediately goes off plan. And I mean, it's just a mess and Jeff Immelt presents at the EPG conference, I'll never forget it, in May of 17. And, you know, he started backing off all of the commitments that he'd been making to us in the market for years. Are you and, on the board at this point or no? No. Yeah, no, yeah, I yeah. called him afterwards and I said, it's over. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. said, it's over. Yeah. I, I said, I'm coming on the board and we can do this the easy way or the hard way. And fast forward, my first board meeting was early November of that year, I had to basically prove I was going to be a good boy to the, to the board. Yep. But I think the first lesson was beware the star studded board. Yeah. Right. This, this was a board of, I want to say 18 people, you know, all heavy hitters. And so your first thought is you've got a lot of very successful CEOs on this board. How, how could they let this happen? How could it happen? Right. Right. The, the, these people 
are not dumb. They did a great job running a business or building a business. How could they let this happen? And remember, you know, I, I feel that when I went on the board, I let the sunlight in, right? I opened the windows, opened the shades, and all of a sudden you started to see free cash flow is negative, power business melting down. Jeff ML has this chase plane, you know, Alstom was going to be a $20 billion write down. Yeah. You know, you might as well put 20 billion in a fireplace and lit it on fire. So it was a breakdown in corporate governance at a huge scale, right? This, this board allowed a CEO with a strong personality to basically rule with an iron, iron fist. Yep. Yeah. And so the first order of business was to hold the board accountable and to change the board. And I'm proud of that because my first board meeting, I told people, this is the biggest breakdown in corporate governance history. You're all culpable and you all need to be fired and we're going to have to make a material change to the board. And so I think out of those 18, we kept the, you know, the newer ones plus myself and John Flannery. And, but I think 12 ended up leaving the board immediately. And then the second part of the turnaround was, you know, and lesson is management's everything. Yeah. Management's everything. And you can have a great company run into the ground by a bad manager. And conversely, you can have a great manager make lemonade out of lemons. And Larry Culp, once he took that role October 1st of 2018, it's been basically watching an amazing turnaround. And he did a lot of the things that we talked about, reducing complexity, pushing the matrix, eliminating the matrix and pushing costs onto P&Ls. Yeah. Um, he took that to a whole step further with Lean, which I didn't fully understand until watching him execute Lean manufacturing, yeah. Lean everything. But today, like I said, GE is humming and... You know, I think it, it's uh, all a function of, you know, Larry Culp and his management style. Industrial tech. That's it. Industrial tech, baby. Yeah. That's such an interesting story, Ed. And I think, you know, we talked a lot of today about where some executives or boards fall short. But I have to think there have been a few, like, really amazing operators along the way that you've learned a lot from. Yeah, look, the two that really jump out at me are Larry Culp and Ed Breen, and they're just great operators. I'll talk about Larry just because I'm so close to it. He's all about lean and, you know, the Toyota motor system. Yep. And it's just been fascinating to see that put into practice. You know, a main premise of lean is getting people who are at the place where the work is actually happening, called Gemba, talking to the other people in the organization, especially people up in the organization. And in a lean culture, the management's very humble. Yeah. And very, I don't want to say deferential, but, you know, very much humble towards the people who actually do the work. Yeah, they're the golden goose. They're the golden goose. And in this case... You know, GE makes gas turbines, right, for utilities or whatever. A gas turbine's going to power, you know, pick a number, 250,000 homes. A gas turbine is the size of a, you know, big house. It probably sits on, you know, three acres. It's a huge machine. It's almost like a massive jet engine. And 
when it goes in for service, which is where GE makes its money, right? Servicing these engines, you literally have to bring the factory to this machine. It's a massive machine and you have to put scaffolding up. And one problem when you had the people at who are doing the work, you need power for all the tools that are going to go in and fix these machines. Right. And when you look at the scaffolding on the pictures, there's like extension cords everywhere. Yeah. Okay. It's just a spaghetti maze of extension cords. And so the question was that that's just so dangerous and such a mess and so hard to sort of coordinate. How do we plan that? You had the people at Gemba meeting with the people who make the machines. And anyways, it came up with a box that it's a big toolbox. Um, they call it the Milwaukee. It's full of Milwaukee tools, all powered by battery. This sounds so simple, Tom, but now a huge Milwaukee box gets delivered to the site when there's going to be a service. Yeah. All the machines are battery powered and they're all charged. There's no more extension cords. Okay. It's like everything's right in your hand, ready to go, powered up. Like and it's total just, efficiency. Total efficiency. And it's it's the GE turnaround, by the way, it's a million little things like that yeah. that were changed to make it go faster, quicker, smoother, making the people who are doing the work more efficient, right? Safer, right? Cheaper. And it's a million things like that. But that's what Larry brought, this, this culture where the people at Gemba, at the place where the work happens, yeah. talking to the higher-ups, figuring out what the problems are and coming up with solutions. Yeah, because the, the people doing the work know better than any executive. And I, you know, just at a basic level, like they're probably happier and they have more pride in their work, right? There are certain jobs fixing, a, you know, servicing a gas turbine. They couldn't get people to do it. It was like the worst job. They came up with this whole system to do it so much easier that now people are raising their hands saying, I'll do that. For any company planning the short term while investing in the long term, decision making is critical. And those decisions can be really affected by the way people are compensated. So I was curious how Ed thinks about executive compensation as a board member of so many public companies. You know, it's interesting going back to the concept of trying being more like private equity. Yeah. I think public companies can learn a lot from private equity, right? You have a lot of CEOs leave public company life and go work for a private equity firm because they can make a ton of money, right? But private equity is not paying you just to show up, right? And so I would always preach to my fellow shareholders in a company that we want our management teams to make a ton of money. We want them to see the opportunity to get rich. What we don't want is for them to make a lot of money just for showing up. Right. So I think the trick is to have, and what I would, this is generalizing, but what I would typically gravitate towards is putting as much of the compensation as possible into long term incentive, having that long term incentive performance based, not restricted stock, which they're going to get regardless, have it performance based, and that performance, a function of a grid, where on one axis is growth and the other axis margin. In other words, if you profitably grow the business, 
you're going to crush right. it. Revenue growth by margin. If you profitably grow the business, you should make a lot of money. Yeah. Because again, we're trying to control the E and the PE will take care of itself. Yep. But management should, if they can grow revenue and margin, they should make a lot of money. Yeah. So what in the world do you think about the macro environment today with like, you know, I feel like we're like kids again, like 10 years old where, you, you know, you remember like Vietnam was on TV and interest rate, like I, we didn't even know how bad it was back then, you know, stagflation, everything like high interest rates, war in Europe, inflation. What's your take on that? What are solid bets in a market like this to compound your capital? Well, I, it's funny you mentioned that inflation in the seventies. I remember my mother, you know, making us drink powdered milk. Yeah, and I was like, I just can't drink it. <laughs> Sorry, I just can't drink it. Yeah, <laughs> I remember there being times when you know it was hard to get to a hockey game because of the price of gas. Yeah, I bet you turn off every light when you leave the room, like I do. And, and turn my the kids, thermostat down. Of course, my kids have no yeah. concept of that. Yeah, my dad would have the thermostat at fifty-eight. And when I'd say I'm cold, he'd say, put a sweater on. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> it's funny, like the last 15 years have not been reality, right? Like basically 15 years, you could buy any asset and you were going to look smart, right? Rates are so low. You could buy basically any asset. And especially if you use leverage, you look really smart. Yeah. And I don't think that's the world going forward. And I think the... 10-year was at four over 4.7 this morning, Yeah, which, by the way, in the scheme of things, is not that high. Yeah, right, right. Like, right. For most of our working careers, the 10-year yeah. has been a lot higher than that. That's right. But there's a lot of debt in the system, and I think it's going to create a lot of stress in the system as all of that debt comes due. Yeah. Because companies, governments, individuals, they're not going to be able to afford that debt with the interest rate reset. And I think that, you know, that look, that's going to create opportunity. Yeah. A lot of equity checks are being written right now, particularly like in M&A. And I talked to some guy the other night and, you know, younger people in their profession or career, like, you know, we're just waiting for the debt market to come back. And this guy's been around forever. He's like, the debt market's here. There's ton available. You just don't like the terms. Yeah. Also, I was reading an update today on the markets and the leverage loan market wide open right? Deals getting done, high yield market, wide open. But I got to tell you, my instinct is there's too much debt in the system. Yeah, for sure. And there'll be a day of reckoning. Yeah. And look, if you have capital, you'll find opportunity, which is another good segue, by the way, Ed, to garden investments. Like what, tell us about like what you're doing. Do you have more flexibility? Do you want to be boxed into the activist thing? Like what are you going to do with garden investments? So look, I, I tell people my my goal is to compound capital, hopefully be clever and innovative doing that and do it with people I like. And that's, you know, that's my objective. It, it's very different mindset than running a fund. You know, if you look at Buffett, probably the best investor of our time, the guy's basically quiet for five or 10 years. And then when there's a meltdown, he's everywhere. Oh my God. Right? Just super opportunistic. Coming in with the and preferred yet, on top of the equity. I mean, like Yeah, crazy. but most people, it's hard to, when you're running a fund, it's hard to do that because you need to be invested. Yeah. Right? And so for my situation now, garden investments, the ability to just sit in treasuries, get five and a half percent. And wait. And be patient. 
and super opportunistic, I think is a real uh, luxury. So that's what I'll do. I think that knowing you for such a long time, I think that's going to require a lot of discipline, you know, just to wait. You know, don't you think? Like you're kind of a doer, (laughs) like you're in motion. Like to just, Buffett has like a real gift of just waiting, like for a decade. Like that's a long time. It's hard, man. I so I I Brian Jacoby, who used to be one of my partners at Tryon, left a few years ago. He's joined me. Chad Fowser has joined me. He was also Tryon for 15 years, the founding partners at Garden Investments. And we talk about this because, you know, you wanna deploy capital. We're doing a lot of work on a lot of different opportunities and you're doing a ton of work. It's human nature to want to deploy capital. But I think, you know, just staying patient is hugely important. And I talked to Chris Hahn uh, from TCI about this and he was like, he gets that, but tough to be a, a market timer. And so I think trying to thread that needle, right, is is important because no one's going to time the market. And I agree with that. But on the other hand, there have been times in my investing career where, and in, in your business career where you come home at night and you're like, oh my God, I, you know, button down the hatches. It's all falling right? apart. Like things yeah. are, <laughs> the world's falling apart. It doesn't matter what the intrinsic value is. No one cares. And we haven't had that in a long time, but we will have it again. For sure. I agree with you. My last question to you, Ed, did you have uh, one or two mentors or, or people in your life you kind of modeled yourself after or really learned a lot from? Who, who was one or two people who were big influences on you? There have been so many people. My f- first boss at Drexel, you know, obviously, you know, gave me a start when I needed it. And he said to me the very first day, my piece of advice to you is don't be a jerk. Don't be a jerk. Be someone that people want to work with. And it sounds so basic, but I think there's a, a lot to that. And I'll tell you my guiding principles at Garden Investments in a moment. But Nelson and Peter, obviously, you know, hugely important to my development sort of on the operating side, right? And they really didn't come from Wall Street. They came from the operating background. And so their experience is, you know, operating companies and turning around companies, that was important. I think just watching some of my friends who have been successful and what they've done yep. has been, you know, very helpful. But with regard to guiding principles at Garden Investments, number one, IRR versus asset gathering is our guiding light. It's all about IRR. Our culture, culture, Tom, as you know, is hugely important. I'm sure ICR has a strong culture. I, I call it, you know, our culture built around 10 things that require zero talent right? Which is being humble, being kind to each other, respectful confrontation, learning from mistakes. You're going to make mistakes. You just can't make that mistake twice, right? But never finger pointing, right? Work, work ethic, high energy, passion, doing extra, being prepared, and positive body language. And I think you know, those things are just, that's, that's hugely important. The other thing I would mention is just giving to charity. 
a percentage of garden investment profit is going to charity. And I think that just gives everyone a reason to, you know, to work hard. It has to be about more than making money in my opinion. And so Tunnels to Tower is going to be our initial charity. That's so awesome, Ed. Love it. When we started ICR, we were kind of like, welcome to the family and, you know, the ICR family. But like the family analogy in a company, you know, it's kind of like, okay, well, families are all dysfunctional and screwed up. And Uncle Joe comes over to Thanksgiving and he like talks politics and drinks too much, but you have to have him back every year. You know, we started looking at ourselves more like a professional sports team, right? We play at a professional level with championship intensity, you know, and we have to care about each other and have that chemistry. But you're right, the culture is so important. And I think what you're doing at Garden Investments is an absolute home run. Thanks, Tom. Culture, the right mindset, and building strong relationships have been cornerstones for Ed's career, and it's inspiring to hear the story of someone with such humble beginnings who's now such a powerhouse in the investment world. Now, welcome to the arena. We're working really hard to bring you exciting guests and great content. If you found this episode insightful, subscribe to the show on your podcast app and leave us a five-star rating. The more the show grows, the more interesting voices we can have on the podcast. And in turn, that should demystify a lot of the stakeholders around public companies and soon-to-be public companies. Thanks for listening. I want to thank Ed Garden for sharing these great career stories with us. It's so exciting to see him head into phase two of his career with Garden Investments, and we'll definitely be checking in with him down the road. This is Tom Ryan. We'll see you next time back in the arena. References to specific stocks are not intended to be recommendations for specific trading behavior. Comments presented on this podcast are intended for informational and educational purposes only, and do not represent opinions or recommendations on whether to buy, sell, or hold shares of a particular stock. All investors are advised to conduct their own independent research into individual stocks before making a trading decision. In addition, investors are advised that past stock performance is no guarantee of future price performance.